This evening we're looking at Psalm 73, the next in the series of Psalms, Praying the Psalms. And uh, I want to read the first part of the, um, the reading this evening from the message. I confess I don't always like the way the message translates things. Um, and I always think of Richard Webb when I think of the message for some reason, but that's for those of you that remember Richard. Um, but I just thought this particular uh, translation of Psalm 73, at least the first half, was really helpful. So, here we go. This is Psalm, the first 20 verses from Psalm 73. No doubt about it. God is good. Good to good people. Good to the good-hearted. But I nearly missed it. Missed seeing his goodness. I was looking the other way, looking up to the people at the top, envying the wicked who have, ha- who have it made, who have nothing to worry about, not a care in the whole wide world. Pretentious with arrogance, they wear the latest fashions in violence, pampered and overfed, decked out in silk bows of silliness. They jeer, using words to kill. They bully their way with words. They're full of hot air, loudmouths disturbing the peace. People actually listen to them. Can you believe it? Like thirsty puppies, they lap up their words. What's going on here? He's got out to lunch. Nobody's tending the store. The wicked get by with everything. They have it made, piling up riches. I've been stupid to play by the rules. Where has it got me? A long run of bad luck, that's what. A slap in the face every time I walk out of the door. If I'd given in and talked like this, I would have betrayed your dear children. Still, when I tried to figure it out, all I got was a splitting headache. Until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I saw the whole picture. The slippery road you've put them on. With a final crash in a ditch of delusions. In the blink of an eye, disaster. A blind curve in the dark and nightmare. We wake up and rub our eyes. Nothing. There's nothing to them. And there never was. And Tim kind of stole my thunder a bit last week when he said, you know, does that bring anyone in particular to mind? And I think, you know, as we we think through that passage, and and particularly that translation, for me, there's, there's all sorts of, you know, public figures that I can think of that I might might look up to and it's tempting isn't it to look up look at other people and think they have it made and wonder why we struggle um, to do the right thing so let's uh, let's spend some time in prayer and in confession father we confess that at times we take our eyes off you we look at others around us and envy them, forgetting the promise you've made to each of us to provide what we need. Sometimes, Lord, we confuse what we want with what we need, and we're tempted to question your provision. Father, forgive our jealousy and our lack of faith. Lord, give us a fresh vision of your love and faithfulness. Amen. And so the reading, the psalm continues. 
This time I'm going to use the NIV. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards you take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. God is good to good people, good to the good-hearted. It's what the psalmist had always been taught, what he declared, it seems, fairly basic as far as faith goes. When we worship God, we celebrate his goodness, declaring that God is good is what worship is all about. But what happens if one day you wake up and find you just don't believe it anymore? That was the crisis of faith that lay behind the writing of this psalm. Psalmist asked, why do I believe in God? And couldn't find any solid basis for that faith. And it's like a yawning gap had developed between expectation and experience. Yes, God is good to God people, to good people. God is good to those who are pure in heart. But what if we don't see that? in our own experience? What if the words we read and we sing seem true out there, but not in here? For the psalmist, it's like a bucket of cold water has just been poured over the embers of faith. In the harsh realities of daily life, looking at the news, how life has treated the psalmist, where is the evidence of the goodness of God? And in extreme disillusionment, the psalmist asks, what's the point? Why have I bothered? Why have I put myself out for God all these years? Everything I've done to keep my heart pure and my hands clean, it's like it's been a waste of time. I've made all this effort into living the kind of life God requires, and instead of finding his goodness, it's like I've been kicked in the teeth for it. Have I been blessed? No. I've been plagued every day and punished every morning. So what's the point? I might as well throw in the towel and throw my lot in with the wicked. Is God good to good people? Didn't look like it to the psalmist. Looked around. Those who don't believe in God, who've got the good life, they're the ones who are healthy. They're the ones who are prosperous. They're the ones who are living without a care in the world. They indulge in pride, violence, conceit, malice, arrogance and oppression, and they thrive on it. Are they held to account? Are they censored for this? No, people flock to support them. Their success breeds more success. 
Seems like you want a carefree life. Best thing to do is to forget about God. You want wealth? Don't let God stand in your way. Doesn't seem to matter how you live. God either doesn't know or he doesn't care. Either way, he doesn't matter. Deep down inside, that's what the psalmist was beginning to think and feel. And chronic doubt like this is a very lonely and isolated place in which to find yourself. Who do you talk to about that? Who do you share those innermost insecurities and vulnerabilities with? Because you might actually destabilise somebody else's faith. And this psalm is attributed to Asaph. And Asaph, well, he was a worship leader in the days of King David. He was a a man who stood up the front and led other people in worship. And and suddenly he was finding that the, the words he was encouraging other people to sing and believe, he didn't believe himself. In 1 Chronicles 16, we read that David appointed certain of the Levites as ministers before the Ark of the Lord to invoke, thank, and praise the Lord, the God of Israel. And Asaph, Asaph was the chief. He was the leader. He was the man in charge. He was in a position of authority and trust. Other people looked up to him. When people came to worship, he led the way. He knew all the right words to say but he didn't believe them anymore. They had no more meaning or significance for him. So when he came to lead worship, he felt like he was a fraud or a hypocrite. And with so many people looking up to him and depending on him, how could he say what he he really thought and felt? What would the effect of that be on them? So he can't be honest and speak his mind. He says, if I had said, I will speak thus, I... I would have betrayed your children. I would have let them down. And how could he speak his mind when his mind was in such turmoil? His faith, which had once been such a source of assurance to him, now it felt like it was giving way. Questions were plunging him into the depths of despair and it was all becoming too much to cope with. A splitting headache, I think it was how the message put it. I love that. And looking back on that time, he can see with hindsight that his heart was grieved his spirit was embittered, and his mind was just full of rubbish. And the level of stress was such that if he'd been to his GP and said, this is what I'm going through, he might have come up with a diagnosis of being on the edge of some kind of breakdown over this whole business. And what saves him? What brings him back from the brink? What gets him back on track again? The turning point of the psalm comes in verse 17. I entered the sanctuary of God, he says. What precisely does he mean by that? Wish we knew for sure, but we don't. I mean, if the psalm was written by Asaph, then as worship leader, he would have been in and out of the sanctuary of God all the time. So maybe it's not the physical temple that is in mind here, but in some way Asaph comes to a holy place where he has an encounter with the living God. Where he stops rushing around, doing all this stuff, being responsible for all this stuff, carrying all this burden, just comes to a place where he can be still. And recognise that the Lord is God. 
How did that happen? What transpired between him and the Lord? It would be great to have more details, but we don't know, perhaps because it was such an intensely personal experience. And you can't manufacture that. You can't create it. You can't make yourself have that kind of experience with God. But there is a vital lesson here for all of us who sometimes, perhaps particularly for those of us who find ourselves over busy doing church all the time. Because you can be so busy doing God's work that you don't really have much time for God himself. You can be so taken up with what's expected of you as a responsible member of the congregation, so many rotors, so many people depending on your leadership. Your own relationship with God sometimes gets swamped in all of that, buried under everything else. And if you've lost or are in danger of losing that connection with God, which makes everything else meaningful, how do you get it back again? And there's no set procedure to follow, no mantra that you can recite or ritual that you can perform that guarantees that God will show up and meet you. But the psalmist talks about going into the sanctuary of God. And spiritual directors talk about the importance of having a place that you can go to. And it might be this sanctuary, this church building, might be our chapel, might be a different building, might be a place in your home or in the garden or some location in the town or countryside, just somewhere where there is space And it's the place you go to not to plan, not to think things through, not to work, not to get things done, but to be still and wait on God. A place that you associate with being in God's presence. And it'll be different to everyone. It may not even be a specific geographical location, but it's a time and a space where only one thing is on the agenda And that is, I I need to connect with God again. And it takes time and space to reach that point where you can be still and know that the Lord is God. But you have to start where you are. And our psalmist was in a bad place. And what pours out of his heart is not worship and adoration and praise and wonder at who God is, what piles out of his heart is all the rubbish that's been building up there, all his pent-up resentment and frustration. Because this is the time to be brutally honest with God, to say exactly what he thinks and how he feels without pulling punches. And God is big enough to be able to take it when we do that. And he sees through all our pious pretensions anyway. The words that we sing without really meaning them don't mean anything to him either. So this is the place for the man who tells other people to worship God because the Lord is good and his steadfast love endures forever. This is the place for him to be brutally honest with God and say, I just don't see it anymore. Just can't believe it anymore. This is the time and the place to pour out his complaint. And it's a complaint that easily takes up the first half of the psalm. And that's okay because that's what prayer is. Prayer is telling it like it is to God with no holds barred. 
This is what I think. This is what I feel. This is my complaint. Why have you let this happen? Why aren't you answering my prayers? Why is my life such a mess? Why can't I see you anymore? Whatever is there, stored up in your mind and heart, good or bad, praise or doubt, it all comes spilling out. And that's prayer. That's just you and God having a heart-to-heart. And maybe you, you don't even find the words to express the pent-up emotion inside. Paul talks about inarticulate groans that words can't express, but the barriers come down. And you and God have an honest conversation about why you've lost sight of his goodness and just how you feel about that. And in the sanctuary, two things happen to our psalmist. He reaches the point where he's prepared to accept that even though he can't see it now, the day will come when God will ultimately act as the righteous judge of all the earth. And the wicked will get what's coming to them. And one day they will have no more significance than the memory of a bad dream. But the other thing is that in verses 23 and 24, the psalmist rediscovers genuine worship again. And it's personal and heartfelt. I'm always with you, he says. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. You will take me into glory. And the sense of disconnect is gone. The sense of complete disorientation has been rectified and it's though equilibrium has been restored. The psalmist has recovered a focus on God and with that has recovered a genuine sense of worship. Suddenly nothing matters more than God. Whom have I in heaven but you? Earth has nothing I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. We seem to have gone right to the opposite extreme now, where nothing matters more than God, and God is the be-all and end-all of the psalmist's life. What's happened here? What's happened is that the psalmist has moved the direction of his affection and desires. Because at one point he was looking at what everybody else had and thinking, why haven't I got that? That's the kind of stuff God should be giving me if if I'm honouring God. And he was wondering what he thought God should be giving him as someone who was good and upright in heart. At this point in the psalm, he's no longer wanting what God can give him. He's wanting God. He's wanting God. And Augustine talked about sin being misplaced desires. It's desiring things rather than the God who gives us everything. And the reality is that if we put God in second place and say, what I really want is this, God, there's space for you here, but what I really want is this. Sooner or later, whatever we want, either getting it or lacking it, is going to push God out. And what the psalmist discovers in the sanctuary, in the holy place, is that actually all that stuff that I'm missing and wanting and thinking I should have and regretting I haven't got, what value is that compared with just having God? 
And this worship is, this worship arises out of the realization that coming into the sanctuary and meeting God, the psalmist realizes that nothing matters as much as having God in his life. And if God is here, then that is the most precious thing there is. It may be that the psalmist had lapsed into thinking, this God business, what's in it for me? Is it worth my while? And if you set your heart on making as much money as you can, going all out to having a good time and success becomes your overriding ambition, then living life God's way is not the best way of achieving those goals. But the sting in the tail is that those who set their hearts on those goals find it very hard to achieve them and somehow, however much they have, it never seems to be enough. To the outsider, like our psalmist, people who live that way seem to have everything anyone could possibly want. And maybe they do, but it doesn't make them happy or contented with who they are. The secret to self-acceptance is knowing that God accepts you and you belong to him. And in the sanctuary, it's like the psalmist falls in love with God all over again. And instead of envying the wicked their success and thinking, I wish I had that, actually, they haven't got God. And I've got God. And I'm better off, even though I haven't got everything that they have. It's not a matter of what's in it for me. God is the greatest good we could ever want or need. And the odds are, let's be honest here, the odds are that having God in your life may well mean that you lose out in worldly terms. You won't be as successful or prosperous as you might otherwise have been. But going into the sanctuary brought to the psalmist to the point of realising that with God in his life, he had something more precious than the world could ever offer. And he'd been beguiled by the glitzy, shallow advertisements offering quick paths to success. And he was intoxicated by the sugar rush that came with that. But by the end of the psalm, he's realised he's not going to measure the value or the success of his life in worldly terms. Ultimately, those who are far from God will perish. But as for me, the psalmist says, it's good for me to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. And the psalm begins with a theoretical statement of God's goodness, but it ends with a personal expression of worship. It's good for me. It's good for me to be near God. I've made the sovereign Lord my refuge. Can you say those words? If you can, then you have the inestimable privilege of knowing the God who created you and who holds your life in his hands. And nothing, nothing is more important or valuable than this. Never mind what everybody else has got, what everybody else is running after, What about your relationship with God? If you allow God to come back into first place again, all that other stuff that people have got really isn't worth a candle by comparison.
And if God has been pushed into second, third or fourth place, because all these things you want have begun to matter more to you than God, recognise that they will never bring you that fulfilment. Only God will satisfy the deepest longings of your soul. So find your sanctuary. Find the space and time to be still. And say, God, re reset my life again. Reboot my life. And let me start again with you first. Because it's good for me to be near God. I've made the sovereign Lord my refuge. And if God has first place in my heart, then that is the most important Let's pray. Lord, we confess how easy it is for us to spend our time looking around at other people, comparing ourselves to them, seeing what they've got, how far they've come. Sometimes we can fall into the trap of envying them, their success, their prosperity, their personality, their lives. But you are the God who made us. <coughs> Forgive us if we pushed you into second or third place. Bring us back to the point of saying, Lord, I belong to you. My life belongs to you. And to rediscover again a genuine sense of your, your love, which is beyond measure. Your goodness, which is unique. Your faithfulness, which is unshakable. your presence with us, which nothing can take away. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, will fail one day, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I'm always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards, you will take me into glory. So it's good for me to be near God. I have made the Sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Amen.